0: begin with the word of prayer. Father, we pray now that as we come to your word, that we would take these words of life and we would do as we ought, that we would apply them deeply. And Father, we ask for your help as we do so. We ask that your spirit would do a mighty work in us. Father, we desire to be obedient people. We desire to love you as we ought. Will you please help us to do that this morning as we consider the truths that we find here. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We'll be in Psalm 51 this morning. I was um, on my way to work, or actually on my way home from work this week. And I was flipping through the radio station, and I came across a song that uh, maybe some of you are familiar with uh, called Spirit in the Sky. Kind of date myself a little bit. I certainly am familiar with it. Um, Spirit in the Sky, that's where I'm going to go when I die. I'm going to the Spirit in the Sky. And uh, for those of you who are not familiar with that song, it is not a Christian song. Uh, But one of the lyrics um, stood out to me, particularly this week. And uh, if you're familiar with the song, they may stick out to you as well. Uh, One of the verses says, Never been a sinner, I've never sinned, I've got a friend in Jesus, so that when I die, He's going to set me up with the Spirit in the sky. And um, that song has a catchy tune, but the the theology of it is somewhat of a train wreck, to be honest with you. Uh, It does not (laughs) match up with what the Scriptures teach us about man's sinfulness, Um, but I wonder how many of us this morning, practically speaking, might live as though we never sin. I wonder, when you sin, what is it that you do with your sin? When you're convicted of a sin, what do you do with the sin? What should you do with it? What I'm getting at is, do you have a practice of repentance? Does your life reflect one of repentance? We know that unrepented of sin it harms relationships. Unrepented of sin, undealt with sin ruins our fellowship with God. Unrepented of sin sears the conscience so that sin becomes more easily to commit, and we commit more of them. They don't bother us as much. Unrepented of sin, sin is stymies our ability to minister to others. Unrepented of sin stunts our spiritual growth. Sin that is not dealt with biblically and repented of is absolutely devastating. And so therefore, before we begin this morning, we at least need to know what is repentance. Well, biblical repentance is turning from our sin and by faith turning towards God, and it involves our entire being. It's not just not doing something outwardly, but it involves all of us, uh, how we think about things, how we feel about things, how we behave about things. It's... It's a change of our thoughts, attitudes, feelings, and behavior. And so we think differently about sin, and we see it as an offense towards God. We feel differently about sin. It, it's repulsive to us. Maybe something that we once drawn to now repulses us. We behave differently. We now, we now don't run to that sin, but instead run to the Lord Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect, but our aim, nonetheless, is that by the help of the Holy Spirit, that we would be strive to be holy as we've been called to be holy. In Psalm 51, my prayer is, will help us in understanding more clearly what biblical repentance is, what it looks like, and when we sin. I hope it will encourage us to quickly repent and turn to God. And so this morning, if you have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to stand with me as we read Psalm 51 together. Psalm 51 begins this way. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you Blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or you would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise do good design and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You may be seated. Well, clearly, this is a psalm of repentance about David's most infamous sin in his life. And 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 tells us the story. And I would encourage you uh, to to maybe even go to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 now and hold your finger there. We're we're going to be looking back at least a couple of times at those chapters, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. In chapter 11, the, the story begins that David is on his rooftop and he's looking out over his rooftop and he happens to see a woman who we know as Bathsheba. And uh, he's attracted to her, so he inquires about her. He sends some men to, to, to go get her. He brings her to his palace. He entices her, and then he commits adultery with her. All of this is happening while her husband Uriah is out fighting. Now, David knew Uriah. Uriah was one of his 37 mighty men. Uh, he was, if you will, um, one of the Navy SEALs of the day. But not only that, he was like SEAL Team 6, the way Scripture kind of describes these men. And David knew them, and they knew him. They they knew each other personally. But while Uriah is out fighting, David commits adultery with his wife, and he learns later that Bathsheba is pregnant, and so he has a problem on his hands. And so in an attempt to cover up that sin, he calls Uriah back from the battlefield and hopes that Uriah will be with his wife. But Uriah is too honorable of a man to do that while his other soldiers are out fighting And so David decides that he's going to send Uriah back out to the field, but he comes up with a scheme to ensure that Uriah is killed. And so God, in the very next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 12, sends the prophet Nathan to David. And Nathan begins to tell David a story. It's not a true story, but David believes that it's a true story. And Nathan tells David that there are two men in the city, One rich and one poor. And the rich man has many herds and many flocks. And the poor man only has one little ewe lamb, the scripture says. And he loves this lamb. He raises it as though it is his own daughter. He lets it drink from his cup. He feeds it from his hand. He sleeps with this little lamb. And this rich man has a visitor to come visit him. And he desires to make a meal for this visitor. And instead of taking one of his lambs, he takes this poor man's lamb and feeds his visitor. And immediately after hearing this in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 5, the scriptures say, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And so the great irony here is that David doesn't realize that the sin that he has committed is eerily similar and far more significant than the sin in the story. He doesn't see himself in it, and his immediate response is one of outrage, and he declares a death sentence on this man. And yet, the sin described by Nathan in the story is mild in comparison to David's actual sin. In the story, only one little ewe lamb is stolen and killed. In David's life, he stole another man's wife and he had her husband killed, an innocent man who had been faithful to David. David's own sin was far worse than this imaginary man's sin, and yet David declares a death sentence on him. The point of the story is totally lost on David, and so Nathan spells it out for him in no uncertain terms. In verse 7, you read, You are the man. David, you are the man. The man that you have pronounced death on, you are him. And David, we learn, repents of his sin. In Psalm 51 now, Lord willing, we'll see four marquee traits of biblical repentance that David wrote about under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, had her husband murdered, and repented. This is not an exhaustive list of repentance. We we could go to other places in Scripture and find more marks of repentance, but these marks are significant, and they are essential. And so that first mark is repentance is marked by acknowledgement of the seriousness and confession of our own sin. Repentance is marked by an acknowledgement of the seriousness and confession of our own sin. We know that when Nathan confronted David, David at this point had kept his sin secret for at least nine months because the baby had been born. But from the very beginning of this psalm, in the superscription at the very top, we see David going public with his sin. He puts it on Front Street for everyone to see. David gives this prayer that he has written, this psalm, to the choir master the person responsible for composing music so that this psalm is sung by all of the people of Israel to sing. I doubt any of us would want our most shameful sin to be put on full display and us to put the lyrics of that sin on the screen behind me so we all can sing it. But that is precisely what David does now, going public isn't necessary for biblical repentance. But dealing with it openly and honestly before the Lord is necessary. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen reads, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who professes and forsakes them will obtain mercy. David acknowledges that his sin is a treacherous offense against a holy God. He understands that his sin is a serious matter. Nowhere do we see David in this psalm saying, God, I, I realize I, I made, a, made a little mistake here. I, I had a lapse in, in judgment. You're not going to read that in this psalm. We didn't read that earlier. He sees his sin for what it is. He understands its seriousness and he calls it out. In verses 1 and 3, you'll see there that he labels his sin as transgressions. He said this, this word transgression, it means to cross the boundary, to go into a forbidden area, to break the law. In verse 2, he uses the word iniquity. Iniquity goes deeper. It it speaks to the the character of a man. He's saying, my my character is wicked. My my character is flawed. And as a result, I have flawed behavior. In verses 2, 3, and 4, he uses the word sin, missing the mark. He's missed the mark. This is a robust description of his offense. He's, he's coming at it from every angle that he can think of. He's, he's not minimizing it. He bows to the reality that it is not insignificant. It's not a minor infraction. He feels the gravity of it. It's not a oopsie-daisy. He tells God in verse 4, I have done what is evil in your sight. Transgression Iniquity, sin, evil. All sin. All sin is evil. Compared to a holy God, all sin, even those sins that we might think of as the most insignificant, is evil. An unkind word? Evil. Gossip. Evil. A thought of evil. Hatred, evil, all sins, evil. But again, in 2 Samuel 11, where again this story is told about Bathsheba and David and Uriah, at the very end of that chapter, the very last verse of chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, verse 27, the ESV says this, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The word translated "displeased" is actually the root word for evil, used in verse four of Psalm fifty-one. It's just used from the same root word, and though, so there are several credible translations, such as the CSB, the NASB, translates the Hebrew here more literally in Second Samuel eleven twenty-seven. The NAS, for example, reads. The thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so it seems to me that when in verse 4 of Psalm 51, David says, I have done what is evil in your sight. He's agreeing with God's assessment of his own sin. Yes, Lord, I agree with you. I I have done what is evil. I've I've tried to run from it, but I agree with you now. It is evil. Part of repentance is agreeing with God about your sin not minimizing it, not ignoring it. David sinned against God. Verse 4, he says, against you, you only have I sinned. Certainly, he has sinned against Bathsheba in adultery. Certainly, he has sinned against Uriah in murdering him and the people of Israel and his abuse of his power as king. And the scriptures speak plainly about these offenses. However, David's Greatest sin is that he committed evil against God himself and breaking his covenant relationship with God by disobeying his loving commands. When we sin against others, we ultimately sin against the one who created them in his own image and has shown us that those actions are wrong in his word. So fundamentally, he, he sinned against God and that's why he acknowledges that sin here. When David sinned, God saw it and he was dishonored. And whatever judgment, whatever discipline the the Lord thought to bring to David, according to verse 4, David understands that God would be blameless and right in doing so. Whatever my discipline, David says, verse 4, I deserve it. Whatever judgment you bring, Lord, I deserve it. I've earned it. And as a result, it would have been easy For David to minimize his sin. His sin is. Somehow to lessen. the, The degree of his sin. From a just and mighty God. There are all kinds of ways. That David may have tried to limit. His responsibility for his sin. But real repentance. Accepts full responsibility. One way David may have tried to minimize his sin. Is by shifting blame. To somewhere else. But. Nowhere in this psalm do we see David shifting blame for his sin. He, he's not blaming anyone else. He's not saying, well, Bathsheba, you yeah, know, she took part too, Lord. I mean, what's she doing bathing out there at that time of day? David owns his sin. It is his, and he has done evil. Notice all of the personal pronouns that David uses in this psalm, the me's, the my's, and the I's. For the sake of time, we won't read all of them, but allow your, your eyes to, to, to look at a few of them. In verse 1, mercy on me and my transgressions. Wash me, verse 2, me and my and my. Verse 3, has two mys. Verse 4, I sinned. Verse 5, I was brought forth. And on and on. David owns his evil, it's no one else's. Fault, no one else's guilt, no one else to blame, no one else's sin. It's his. Lord, I did what was evil. My sin, my iniquity, my transgressions. David doesn't shift blame. He owns it. David also doesn't try to minimize his sin by making excuses. Lord, I'm, I'm just a guy. She's a beautiful woman. He's making no excuses here. Uriah was a soldier. He understands the risks of war. David makes no excuses in this entire psalm like that. Rather, in verse 5, he goes even further in owning his own sin. He says, in sin my mother conceived me. He's not saying that his mother was guilty of some kind of sexual immorality when he sinned. There was no act of sin on his mother's part when he was conceived. He's acknowledging his sin nature that he inherited from his parents, that we've all inherited from our parents. Romans 5.19 says, By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. We may try to use our depravity as an excuse for our sin. Instead, David doesn't do that. We, We sometimes might say, Well, that's just how I am. That's just me. David doesn't do that. David's using no excuse. He's not using his depravity as an excuse. Instead, he's acknowledging the depth of his guilt. It's not that these actions were just sinful, but the very core of who David is, he's saying, is tainted by sin. He's not excusing himself. He's further condemning himself. It's it's in me. And that's true of of you and it's true of me. The innermost desires are corrupt and sinful, David's saying. He has an inner bent towards sin. And he's admitting that his problem extends well beyond the transgressions of adultery and murder and misuse of power. His problem is greater. His problem is deeper. And as a result, his need for mercy is much greater and much deeper. And this brings us to the second mark of biblical repentance, and that is repentance is marked by desire for the mercy and cleansing that God alone can provide. From the very beginning of this prayer, David pleads for mercy. From the very beginning, he says, Have mercy on me, O God. And really, this entire prayer of repentance is a pleading for mercy. And this mercy that David requests is, based on nothing that David has to offer. nothing. There's nothing about David himself that warrants mercy. Nothing about him, nothing he's done. Not that he's a man after God's own heart. Not that he's he's done some good things. Not that he's been faithful to carry out God's commands in the past. He he doesn't go, Lord, you remember that thing with Goliath? You know feel like that was pretty good of me. You'd think that we can kind of just call it even here? We don't see that anywhere. He doesn't appeal to any of his good deeds or his works. I have nothing. All that he has brought is sin. God's mercy cannot be earned by mere man. And so, what does David appeal to? David appeals to God's steadfast love. This is God's Covenant faithfulness. God's love does not waver or wane like like ours does. His love is steadfast. It is faithful. It is never ending. He appeals to God's character even further. He said to God's abundant mercies. Will you show me mercy based on your faithful, steadfast love, God? And what David is doing in these words, they, they teach us something. Because David, it seems, is recalling what he knows to be true about God from God's Word. God's steadfast love and mercy, that's that's covenantal language given to the people of Israel by God Himself. We see this in Exodus 34 when Moses receives the Ten Commandments. So Moses has just received the law, and God knowing that his people were going to inevitably and surely break that law, says this. We read this in Exodus 34, 67. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, and again, this is the Lord saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. David is not appealing to his own character. David is appealing to the character of God. Father, I bring nothing but my own sin. I'm not worthy. I have brought nothing but condemnation upon myself. So I plead, based on your character, for your mercy. David's appealing to God's character, not his own. And so David is saying, Lord, I know this is true. I know this is true because you say it about yourself in your Word. I plead for mercy. I plead for mercy. From what does David desire mercy? 2 Samuel 12, again, the very next chapter, just after David is confronted with his sin, he's told by Nathan what the consequences of his sin will be, what his discipline will be. And he's told really three things there in that chapter. In verse 10, he's first told that the sword will never depart from his house. And we know that that happened. Three of David's sons were killed. The second thing that he's told in verse 11, he says, He will raise up evil against you, that's against David, out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. And we know from 2 Samuel 16 that this happened. His own son Absalom rebelled against him. And as a way to demonstrate to, to his power over his own father, he does exactly this. And then in verse 14, David's told that, that this child, that he has conceived with Bathsheba, the child will die. This, this child is going to die. And these consequences, this discipline, it grieved David deeply. It grieved him deeply. After, after he would heard, for example, that his son, that he conceived at Bathsheba, was going to die, the scripture says there that, that he fasted and he prayed. And, and he, he, he fasted and prayed for this, for this child's life. And he was so distraught by it that he's laying on the ground and, and the men that were there with David couldn't even pull him up off the ground. He was in such distress over the death of this child, they couldn't even stand him up, just wailing on the ground for the life of this child. And when the child finally died, they were even afraid to tell David that the child had died for fear that he would harm himself. So this discipline of the Lord, it was, it was painful for David. He hurt. But in his repentance, he doesn't ask for mercy from these consequences of his sin. We, we don't read of that in this psalm. So what does David ask God for mercy from? He asked for mercy that his sins would not be held against him. That his sins would be blotted out. That he wouldn't stay submerged in the stain of sin. And that he would be made clean. Why? As brutally painful as those consequences to his sin were, for his sins to be held against him, for his sins to be held over him, would be infinitely more painful, infinitely more brutal, infinitely more tragic. And so in verse 1, he says, blot out my transgressions. Verse 9, blot out my iniquities. That is, wipe them away as though they have never happened. And he continues in verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be clean. Hide your face from my sins, he says in verse 9. Seven times he petitions the Lord to remove his sins. Remove my sins. Make me clean, he says. David lifts up his voice to the Father in great boldness and asks God to do what only he knows that God can do. To blot out his transgressions. To wash him. To cleanse him. To purge him with hyssop. And nearly all of these requests, again, are direct references to the ceremonial cleansings of the Jewish law. And the people of Israel would have been quite familiar with them. A hyssop branch that you may remember when Pastor Greg went through Leviticus was used to sprinkle blood, uh, the blood of an animal on a person who had recently been healed of leprosy. And, and it was it signified to purify them, that they could safely now enter into God's presence and among God's people. David longs for more than just a ceremonial cleansing. Look at his language. He says, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He wants to be thoroughly clean. David has said, I'm sinful in my my innermost parts. Now he's saying, cleanse me so that there is no guilty spot, no guilty stain, no blemish. No guilty blemish can be found on the outside or the inside. Don't whitewash me, but cleanse me fully, totally, completely to the core. Make me clean. But this kind of cleansing takes more than the blood of goats or lambs or bulls. When David cries out, purge me with hyssop, this points forward ultimately to the blood of Jesus. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remissions of sin. There, without the shed blood of Jesus applied, there is full, I'm sorry, with the full shed blood of Jesus applied, there is full and complete cleansing, full and complete blotting out, and full and complete remission of sin. David knows that God and God alone can answer his pleading. If God purges him with hyssop, he shall be clean. If he cleanses him, he shall be whiter than snow. Why does he want to be made clean? What is the benefit in it? Why why is it that he needs to be made whiter than snow? Because repentance is concerned not only with, with a desire to be made clean by the mercy of God, but also by desire to return to close fellowship to God. Our third mark this morning is repentance is marked by desire to return to close fellowship with God. David uses the language of Israel's ceremonial rites to understand, uh, underscore his deep desire to have close, intimate, full-access fellowship with God once again, to enter into his presence again. He longs for a restored relationship with God. This is his greatest motivation. He wants God himself. That's who he wants. He cries out in verses 8 and 9, let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. This entire prayer is the prayer of a broken man. He is broken. David has been undone by the weight of his sin. He's crushed by his shame and guilt, and he's moved far from God. And God, in his mercy, has confronted David and broke him, and he's been moved to repentance. And so David's desire is to return to close fellowship with God. And that has been driven by godly grief. Godly grief. this is the, the kind of grief that is according to the will of God. This is the kind of grief that God wants you to experience if you've sinned. Why? Because according to 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, one that Pastor uh, 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 Jason read earlier, first, or 2 Corinthians seven ten says, Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Esau, you remember Esau? Esau, he, he had great remorse when he sold his birthright. He was desperate to get it back. He even, he even wept over it he wanted it back so bad. But according to Hebrews 12, 17, he wasn't repentant. Judas was distressed with such remorse for his sin that he killed himself. But neither of those are examples of genuine biblical repentance nor of godly grief. Instead, they they teach us that you can be sorry, you can cry and wail profusely, you can have much regret and remorse even to the point of killing yourself, but none of that means that you are repentant. None of those things are biblical markers of genuine repentance. Rather, one of the greatest biblical markers of genuine, genuine repentance is moving towards God in desiring intimate fellowship with Him. David's plea is that by the mercy of God, his brokenness, his godly grief, would be, that that would be turned into unfettered joy in enjoying fellowship with God. I'm broken This godly grief that that I have. Father, let me come into your presence that I may have joy. That's what he wants. He wants to be close to God. And he says in verse 11, Cast me not away from your presence. He goes on to say, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Kind of as just a parenthetical aside as as we read that. When David says, Don't take your Holy Spirit from me, he's not implying that you can lose your salvation. In the Old Testament there were certain people who had the Spirit poured out on them for specific purposes or tasks. And we know from 1 Samuel 16 that David had the Spirit in order to help him do what God had called him to do as king. And so he's just simply saying, don't take your Spirit from me in that regard. But when David says, cast me not away from your presence, what he's declaring is his great need for God. Yes, David has declared his need for forgiveness. He has declared his need for cleanness. He has declared his need for mercy, but more than all of that here, he says, I need you. These other needs, they come from his deepest needs of needing the Father. He needs him. I want you. I need you. At the very center of repentance is a deep longing and insatiable need for God. Martin Lloyd-Jones commenting on this passage Puts it well. He says, and I quote, I do not hesitate to assert that this is perhaps the most subtle and delicate test as to whether we have repented or where we are, our attitude towards God. The one against whom David has sinned is God, and yet the one he desires above all is God. That is a difference between remorse and repentance. The man who has not repented but who is only experiencing remorse when he realizes he has done something against God, avoids God. The man who has not been dealt with by the Spirit of God and has not been convinced and convicted tries to get away from God to avoid Him at all costs. He does not think. He does not read the Bible. He does not pray. He does everything he can not to think about these things. But the extraordinary thing about the man who is convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit is that though he knows he has sinned against God, it is God he wants. Be merciful to me, O God. He wants to be with God. This is the peculiar paradox of repentance, wanting the one I have offended, Martin Lloyd-Jones says. David wants God. More than anything else, he wants him. And it's God that he wants, and that's his joy, so his joy is complete. He cries out in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. The, the, the reality is, is that sin chokes out our joy. When, when we are guilt ridden over our offenses against God we, we have no joy. When, when deep down uh, we're burdened by our sin, we, we have no joy. Our spirits are hindered. And we just let sin settle in our life, don't, don't deal with it as we ought, don't repent from it as we ought. We, we, we know we can feel it weighing us down in our spirit. Some of us know what I'm talking about. Those of us who have times not dealt with, it, with our sin knows what this feels like. And here David asked that God would restore that joy that he once knew. And that God would keep him there. That God would restore that joy and that God would keep him there. And we know that God in his mercy through Christ Jesus will do exactly that. He will do that. And so we see here, lastly, that repentance is marked by a longing for restoration. Repentance is marked by a longing for restoration. True repentance is eager to make right the wrongs that have been committed. In verse 13, Solomon wants others to learn from his sin, and so he desires to teach them God's ways. We might ask, well, which ways are those? And I assume that that for some of the things that David has learned and experienced firsthand as a result of his own repentance. Maybe he'll teach them that God is merciful to the repentant. Maybe he'll teach them that God delights to blot out their iniquities. Maybe he'll teach them that God delights to restore joy to those who have turned from their sin and by faith turned to him. Whatever it is that he teaches, he wants them to benefit from what it is that he's learned and from what he has experienced. We've seen this kind of thing here at Providence. Someone has struggled with sin but they've repented of that sin, they've had victory over it, and somebody else learns about that, and they too are struggling with that sin that this person once struggled with, but has repented of, and so they seek them out, and the two of them meet, and this brother or sister sits down with them, maybe over a cup of coffee or something, and helps them work through that as they repent of that sin. And it's in that sense that they've been restored to minister in light of what the gospel has done in their own life. We've seen that here. In these last two verses of, of this psalm, verses 18 and 19, David is eager to petition God to spare his own people from, from the consequences of his sin. We know that sin is like cancer. It spreads. It has influence. And David is asking that his people would be protected, that they would prosper and be able to worship God, that they wouldn't see what it is that he has done and believe that they can do the same thing without consequence. And so he asked that they'd be protected, and that they would be able to worship God as they had before. But in these remaining verses, verses 14 through 17, David desires that his worship and his praise would be restored. David's worship of God with the people of God, again, had been affected. And so now David is not interested anymore in outward ritualistic praise, worshiping God with his lips while his heart is far from him. He has been grieved in his worship. He's tired of it. He doesn't want to offer mere lip service. He's not going to settle for worship that is a stench in the nostrils of God. not going to settle for it. And so he goes right to the meat of the matter in these verses. And he asks for deliverance from his blood guiltiness. Obviously referring to his murder of Uriah. And and as he does this here, he, he gets real specific. The rest of the psalm, if you look over it, he he, he doesn't, he doesn't get super specific with his other sins, but here he does. How does this, that everybody is going to sing in Israel, all the people of Israel, how does this apply to them? What benefit would it be to them, to those who are now singing this psalm? Well, most commentators agree that the point here is that for the people singing, is that if God is able to deliver someone for murder or from murder, an offense worthy of the death penalty under Jewish law, and that person has been restored and shown mercy, then absolutely he will show mercy to those whose sin may not be quite as heinous. It gives them hope. He shows mercy to those who don't deserve mercy. He turns the guilty guiltless. The story of the Bible is how God... Does this. He doesn't overlook or ignore sin. God deals with sin. He deals with it in such a way that it costs him his own son. But he does it in such a way also that the sinner praises their God, their deliverer. We see how God deli- deals with sin on this side of the cross. We see it far more clearly than David did when he wrote this psalm. We see it far more clearly than the people who sang this psalm saw it. David was aware that he was to be stoned for these offenses. There was no exception for a king under the law. There was no sacrifice to take care of this offense. It wasn't any bull you could burn, goat you could take, no remedy. And so David says in verses 16 and 17, that while I know there is no sacrifice for such sins, this I do know. You will not reject one who comes to you with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. You'll not turn away your mercy from someone who is truly repentant. I have nothing, Father, to offer but a contrite heart, a broken spirit. I have nothing to offer. I'm filled with with godly grief. I'm broken. Your mercy is my only plea. What God wants is your heart. He wants all of you. He wants you to live a life of worship. Not not just a moment of worship on Sunday morning, but a life of worship. Paul says in Romans 12, he exhorts us, by the mercies of God, live your life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. God has never despised anyone who has come to him with an authentically broken heart turn if you will to 2nd Samuel chapter 12 2 Samuel chapter 12 we'll look there one more time and i want us to see in verse 9 what the prophet nathan tells david 2nd Samuel 12 verse 9 nathan says this why have you despised the word of the Lord. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Am- Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now look back to Psalm 51, verse 17. Psalm 51 verse 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. David saying, Lord, I come to you with my innermost being broken. My heart is contrite. Although I have despised you, you will not despise me. God has never despised someone who has come to him with an authentically broken heart. Never, no, not, once. So the question is, will you come to the Lord of mercy today? You may be sitting here this morning and you're not sure really what to make of all this. You may be sitting here this morning feeling conviction by way of the Holy Spirit. Not sure really what to do with it. You may be here and you've never repented of your sin and by faith trusted in the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I can tell you this, that the Bible teaches that if you do not repent of your sin, if you do not place your trust in the Lord Jesus, you will pay for those sins for all eternity under the wrath of a holy and just and mighty God. You will pay for those sins. But the good news is that God gave His Son that you might know Him. And if you turn to His Son, Jesus, you can know Him and you can receive mercy from your sin. For those who have placed their faith in Christ, I'd ask, what does your practice of repentance look like? What does your practice of repentance look like? Do you repent of sin? Do do, do you repent of specific sin? I'm not asking, do you ask for forgiveness sometimes? If your repentance doesn't look like that of Psalm 51, go to the Lord this morning. Repent and seek his mercy. If there's a sin that you've been ignoring, go to him and seek his mercy. Maybe there's a secret sin Go to him, repenting, contrite heart, seeking his mercy. Today is the day to repent, to plead for the mercy of God. And if you do, you will receive it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how even in your word, we see men who have failed, men who have loved you, how they have failed. And yet, in your mercy, you have granted them repentance and brought them back to yourself that they might fellowship deeply with you that their joy of your salvation might be restored to them. And so now, Father, we pray that if there is anyone here this morning that needs to seek your mercy, that they would do so, that they would know that you are a God full of mercy. You have abundant mercies. Let them cling to that.